we live in a world where Christianity is no longer the force that it once was. We live in a country where Christianity is no longer the part of life that it once was. And people all over are searching for why the church isn't growing, why people aren't getting saved, why things aren't happening, why the church isn't having impact like it used to. Let me suggest to you, coming out of that clip, that perhaps the reason that people aren't believing us as much as they once did is because we aren't living with a passion that calls them to stop and take notice of what we believe. It says in that clip that if you had one song left to sing, would you sing it in that way, with those words, would that be the cry of your soul? And for many of us, the problem with our Christian life is that we have disconnected the passions of our life with the Christian part of our life, and as a result, we live a boring, ho-hum existence. Last week we started a new series of sermons called One Month to Live. You're reading a book, or most of you are reading a book called One Month to Live, and 30 days to a no-regret life. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 5. Luke, chapter 5. And we're going to get to this passage of Scripture in just a minute because it shows what a passionate life ought to look like. You know, someone has said that nothing great ever happens without passion. The driving force behind all great art, all great music, all great literature, all great drama, all great architecture is passion. Passion is what makes things great. Passion propels athletes to break records. Passion pushes scientists to discover new cures for diseases. Passion is what gives life. Last week we started with John 10.10 and that God created us to have life and life more abundant. And passion is what gives us that life. Mark 12.30, that's on your handout, just says, So love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and energy. I know that most of you are used to the NIV or the King James Version of that that talks about love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and spirit. But the truth is that the word heart there means more than just your emotions. It means the very essence of who you are, the very passions of your life, the very self within you. So in that verse on your handout, circle the word passion. Because God wants you to love Him with passion. God wants you to live with passion. God created you to be a passionate person. Now here's the reality. The reason that we're created to be people of passion is because we serve a God who is passionate. He feels deeply about things. He loves things deeply. He cares deeply. He hurts even when we hurt. It tells us in Scripture that He is a passionate God. Some people say, well, well, God didn't create me to be passionate. And I would say to you, that whether you're an extrovert, an introvert, uh, I don't know what I am, vert, whatever that is, that God created you to live passionately. God created you to live a life of passion. Now, sometimes we forget that because we get disconnected from 
whom we came. Carrie Shook, the author of the book, and those of you that are watching the videos in uh, Sunday school, the pastor that, that developed this book and this idea, talks about riding in the car with his wife, with his eight-year-old son, Stephen. And Stephen, as he was riding with the car, uh, did something that reminded his mom of his dad. And she just simply said to him, Stephen, you are your daddy's boy. And Stephen said, no, I'm not. She said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I'm not related to dad. He said, what do you mean you're not related to dad? He said, well, I'm related to you because you had me. Dad just married you. Carrie says when he thought about that, he thought, maybe I need to have a talk with him. And that, unfortunately, son, you are related to me, whether you like it or not. And the truth is, God is a passionate God, and if we are going to live a life that glorifies Him, that attempts to imitate Him, that attempts to model who He is, then we are going to live a passionate life. Now, let me say from the very beginning, those passions will not be the same in all of us. And if you want to know what you're passionate about, or if you want to know what somebody's passionate about, just watch them. See them come alive. See them when they do something, if it's, if it's uh, mundane and drudgery, or see if it makes them come alive. I have two boys, Eli and Luke, and they are completely different personality-wise. And here's the thing, when you, when you have them, when you can watch them, and as I've been able to day in and day out for the last few years, you begin to develop and see all of the personality traits that they have. And one of the areas that I can tell that their passions are completely different or that that their lives are completely different is in their passions. Eli loves putting things together. He loves taking Legos and intricately building those things. He can uh, can take the book and he can go ahead and those things that say on him 7 to 10 years old, he's not there yet, but he can take the book and he can put it together. He finishes it, he tears it apart, and he builds something else. When Eli sees the leg, I mean, when Luke sees the Legos, all he does is he takes them and he throws them. Now you say, well, he's a little bit younger. I don't think that has anything to do with it. He just throws them. When Luke walks into a room, if there is a ball anywhere inside, he immediately gravitates towards the ball. We have a little basketball goal downstairs in our playroom, and Luke will grab that ball and literally he will shoot that thing until we make him do something else. Over and over and over again. And before long, he doesn't want to shoot by himself. He's getting you involved. Dad, Daddy's turn. Eli will go down there. He'll shoot too, and he'll go on to building some Legos. Completely different. And the question is not if you have a passion in your life or if you're living with passion. The question is, are you living out what God intended you to do? Romans 12:11 says this, also on your handout. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. There's another word I want you to circle in that passage, and it's just simply the word keep. The reason I want you to circle that is because I think it's important to realize here that if we have to keep our spiritual fervor, keep our passion for the Lord, that means that there is a very real chance that we could lose it, right? You don't keep something unless you might lose it. And the truth is that all of us in this room are in danger of living lives that are not passionate about God. You know, I was reading through the book this week, and 
following day by day as I hope you are as well. And as it got to that part about the vine and the branches, I was reminded of how many times in my life I tried to be a branch without being attached to the vine. You know that story, even if you didn't read the book, you know the story of of Jesus saying that He was the vine, that we were the branches, and the only way that we were going to be powerful in life, the only way that we were going to live in life, the only way that we were going to have the power to do what He calls us to do is to remain attached to Him. And the only way that you will live a passionate life is if you remain connected to the passionate God. And then as you're connected to Him, allow Him to show you what you need to do. This morning what we're going to do is look at a story in Luke chapter 5 that many of you are probably familiar with. But it's a story of passion. A story of some friends that felt like that they were passionate enough about their friend that they were going to do whatever was necessary to see his life transform. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. Now, realize this is one of those moments in his ministry, in the life of Jesus, when his ministry is really taken off. People are coming to hear him. They're coming in droves. Not yet have we started to get all the questions. Not yet have we turned to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody trying to get him off the scene. They're just trying to understand what he's doing. It continues in verse 17 and says, And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him up into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now we'll talk about that scene in just a minute. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to think to themselves, Who is this fellow who can speak blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood in front of him, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. We have seen remarkable things today. I don't know about you, but one of the prayers of my heart One of the desires of my soul is that I would be able to say on a daily basis because of what God has done in my life, I have seen remarkable things today. And what we see in this passage of Scripture is a group of friends that take their passion to the point where they live not letting anything else get in their way in order that they might see a friend come to wholeness. I want you to imagine for a minute That you're this man on the mat. That you're a man who has been paralyzed. That you are someone that can't move. That your whole life is spent on a mat three feet wide and six feet long. That someone has to feed you, carry you, clothe you, move you to keep you from getting sores, clean you, and you never know the freedom of independence. 
Imagine, if you will, as you lay down at night on that mat and you look up at the ceiling and you drift off to sleep, then in your dreams you suddenly are given the freedom to move. And in your dreams you run and you play and you enjoy life. You serve people and you live boldly. But then you wake up again. And you stare at that same ceiling that's your prisoner. And that mat that comprises your world and you realize that you will never be free. That was the life of this paralytic. He was on the mat. In a day and time, it tells us in Scripture and tells us throughout the ancient world that there was a day and time when you were paralyzed like that. Everybody blamed you because you had to do something wrong. And so as a result, you couldn't build community. You couldn't seek out friends. You couldn't live in the midst of what God intended you to live. And so it was a very lonely existence except for this man. Because he had some friends that cared. Now imagine if you're one of this guy's friends and you visit him on a regular basis. Maybe you're part of the group that is feeding and caring and clothing and moving and all of those things. And you're helping him out and you dream yourself someday of a time coming Well, maybe something will happen. Maybe there'll be a breakthrough. Maybe something different will go on. And as a result, perhaps your friend can live life like you so desire for them to live. That you've seen him paralyzed. You've seen him crushed. You've seen him depressed. You've seen him give everything he's got to try to move an inch at all. And it all is fruitless. And one day you hear of the fact that there is a healer in town. Now, do you know if the healer can heal? You don't know. You've just heard stories. You haven't seen him. You haven't been there. But you know what you hear. And so you develop a plan and you think we've got to get him there. Whatever has to happen, we must take our friend there. We must help them to understand what's going on. And if there is even a chance that something good could come, we have to take our friend. This morning I want us to notice just a few things that these friends did that if you're going to live your life in a passionate way that you're going to have to do in order to see God do remarkable things. And the first thing is, they did something drastic. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, that in your life, if there is some area where you see you need healing, where you see you need forgiveness, where you see you need reconciliation, that you're going to have to do something drastic. I want you to imagine, if you will, you're these friends. And so you pick up the guy and you carry him on the mat, and you get him there, and you realize that the crowd is just too big. Everyone is there. The house is full. You hear that the teacher's inside, but you can't even see the house. And so you think, how are we going to get inside? And what I want you to imagine for a minute, before you ever get to the part where they start tearing up the roof to let their friend down is, they had to get to the roof in the first place, right? Right? And it tells us in Scripture that there was a major crowd there. So you can imagine that these four guys, five guys, six guys, that are carrying this guy on the mat, that they're not probably being real cautious going through the crowd. I don't know what the Hebrew word for or Aramaic word for excuse me is, but I can imagine them bumping into people, excuse me, excuse me, coming through, coming through, let's go, move aside. And you know what's interesting is, as they went through, the crowd probably started to part. You know why? Because nobody wanted to get close to this guy. And I can imagine the guy the whole time going, guys, what are you doing? 
I mean, you think about it for a minute. They, they may not have told him what was going on. They may have told him. They may have just said, we're going to pick you up at nine. And he really had no choice in the matter, right? And so they're taking him through. And I could just imagine him saying, guys, guys, what are we doing? Where are we going? What's happening here? Don't I get a vote in this? No, you don't. We're going. And it says that they realize that the only way they can ever get there is to get to the roof. Now, I can't imagine who came up with that idea, but I can imagine him just saying, guys, I got a plan. I say, we take him on his mat, we carry him to the top of the building, we cut a huge hole in the roof of these people's house that we don't know. Then, gradually, you and all of us together are going to lower him. You, you know, I don't know how they lowered him. I don't know if they had a pulley system. My guess is they didn't bring one, right? And so they're lowering him somehow down in there, and everybody looks around, and they think for a minute, and they go, great idea. Have you ever been a part of one of those groups that it doesn't matter, somebody can come up with the craziest idea, and they just say, let's do it. Now, some of you are saying, absolutely not. That's not how I operate. I am cautious and planned out. I have everything listed. Some of you, however, are the people that if somebody said, let's jump in a van and let's go to California, how are we going to pay for it? I don't know. Let's go. You'd say, when do I sign up? These were guys that were lowered through a roof. They did something drastic. Let me just suggest to you, there are a couple of things that will lead you to do something drastic. And the first thing is, is when you remember what's important. When you remember what's important. You know, the reality is that most of us have in our lives have things that are okay. We have things that are good. But sometimes we have a problem understanding what is truly important. Somebody has said that what we have today is not time management problems. What we have today is life management problems. And so as we continue in this 30 days left to live, by the way, we don't have 30 days left anymore, right? We're on day seven. And as we think through this countdown, let me ask you a question. Would you look in your daytime or would you look at your online calendar? Would you look in your notepad that you've got things scribbled down? Would you look in your mental state of everything that has to be done? And would you just evaluate what in that list of things that has to be done is important and what is not? How many of you here today feel like sometimes you don't have enough hours to do all that you need to do? Let me see your hand. How many of you are just too tired to raise your hand right now? Right? And the reality is God gave us all the same amount of time. And as I've said before, if you're too busy to accomplish everything you've got to accomplish, then you're too busy. And maybe you need to begin to look for some places to to create some margin, some space. Maybe you need to analyze what is truly important and what is not. You know, there are a lot of things on my schedule for the next couple of weeks. But there is nothing more important than the time that I spend with my boys at night right before they go to bed. There are a lot of things that are, that are on my schedule in the next couple of weeks, but there is nothing as important as me driving my son to school every morning. There are a lot of things that are on my schedule over the next couple of weeks. Some of you are on the schedule for the next couple of weeks. There are a lot of church things on the schedule for the next couple of weeks. But there is nothing more important than the time that I spend talking to my wife. There are a lot of things on my schedule over the next couple of weeks. 
There are a lot of things that I've got to get done as far as church is concerned, as far as my schoolwork is concerned, as far as a lot of things outside of here are concerned. But there is nothing more important than the time that I'm going to spend with my Savior. And it comes down to figuring out what is stuff and what is important. And what you have to understand is that it's not always so clear cut. But generally in life, you recognize the important stuff. And let me tell you one way that I recognize the important stuff. Here's just a simple thing that I do. is I try to figure out what the enemy is trying to keep me from doing. Right? We all, we all have an enemy, right? Satan is on the prowl. He's looking who he can intimidate. He's looking who he can discourage. And I find myself, isn't it interesting how the things that life starts crowding out the first are those conversations with your wife, are those times at night with your children, are those moments when you're spending time doing things for the Lord, are those moments of just spending time with Him, that life crowds those out very quickly. And when I find myself rushing my kids to bed, when I find myself wishing that I didn't have to do this particular thing, or it seems that life is crowding that out, I say, what is the enemy keeping me from? And then here's the second thing that must happen if you're going to live a life that does something drastic, is you must remove the obstacles. Now we get to the top of the roof. These guys are there. They get there. The plans seem great. And they just start removing the tiles. Now, if there would have been an accountant in the bunch, they would have calculated how much money they were going to have to spend to replace the tiles. If there had been an engineer in the bunch, they would have determined that their weight was not going to be supported once the tiles started to be removed, that they might all crash through the roof. But all that was in that group was a group of passionate guys that knew they had something important, their friend getting to Jesus. And they were going to do whatever they could. So they began to tear the roof apart. Now I know it's hard to imagine, but imagine being in that room and you have waited for weeks to hear Jesus and Jesus is in this home and you've got front row seats and in the middle of your front row seat view of Jesus, things begin to fall on your head. You look up and something gets in your eye and you see this hole beginning to open up. You begin to see a sunroof where there used to not be a sunroof. And then this guy starts to descend. You see, the friends looked at what was going on in their lives and they said, you know what? There are a lot of things that could keep us from getting our friend to Jesus. But we're going to remove everything we can to get him there. I want you to think for just a moment. They had heard this guy could heal. They had heard stories over and over. Maybe they'd even been there before. But they had no guarantee that Jesus was going to do anything. They had none. They didn't receive a letter from Jesus saying, if you bring your friend, I'll heal him. They hadn't heard confirmation from one of the apostles. If you get him through the roof, Jesus will do something. They didn't know what was going to happen. They were taking a huge risk. And let me tell you this. If you're going to live a life of passion, you will live a life of risk. You will live a life not always knowing what is to come, not always knowing what's on the other side, not having a clue sometimes of what the outcome may be. But these friends knew that they were doing something so important that it didn't matter to them what the results were going to be. They had to try it anyways. You've got to remove the obstacles. 
the first thing that you must do if you're going to live a life of passion is that you must do something drastic. Here's the second thing. You must expect the unexpected. Let me ask you a question, all right? This is one of those I want you to answer. Why did the friends bring this paralytic to Jesus? To have him healed, right? This paralytic was on the mat. He was laid out. There was nothing he could do. The friends carry him. They drop him down from the roof. I don't, I don't know if he landed on the floor. I don't know if they're somehow they're holding him. I don't know what's happening. But he's there right in front of Jesus. And they're expecting Jesus to say, you can walk, get up. But Jesus doesn't do what they expect, right? Right? He says, your sins are forgiven. I thought one of my favorite quotes that came out of the book this week was the quote by C.S. Lewis that says, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. Remember that? And what it says here is that when he comes down, Jesus sees that they think his biggest need is his physical condition. But his biggest need is not his physical condition. His biggest need is his spiritual condition. And let me just suggest to you that if you are constantly focusing on the physical conditions as needs in your life or in the life of others, perhaps you need to begin to ask the more deep question or the deeper question, you must ask, what are the spiritual problems that they have, not what are the physical problems that are there? And Jesus looks and he sees him. And these friends, I can imagine the looks on the friends' faces when they cut out the roof. They lower their friend. They're hanging over the roof looking in. And they hear, your sins are forgiven. I think their first reaction would have been something like, do what? All right, Jesus, let's get to the other part, all right? That's not why he's there. He's on a mat. We didn't bring him on a mat because his sins need to be forgiven. We brought him on a mat because his physical problems need to be restored. But one of the things that I will tell you is that God, when you begin to live a passionate life, one of the greatest things about living a passionate life is you never know how God is going to show up. Another metaphor that was mentioned in the book this week was the roller coaster. And you know one of my favorite things about riding a new roller coaster is? Is that you don't know what's coming next. How many of you here like riding roller coasters? Let me see your hand. I love it. Uh, one of my favorite roller coasters we've ever ridden was in, down in Orlando at Universal Studios. And literally when you got off, the hallway was about this wide because you kept bumping into it. You're a little disoriented. But what I really like is when I don't have a clue what's coming next. The best roller coasters look like you're going to hit something and then you dive. You go around a corner and you don't know what's going. You go straight up or straight down. And sometimes life is like that. And instead of being concerned that the unexpected may happen in your life, you must be prepared for it and embrace it. I think it was the songwriter, not a great theologian, John Lennon that once said, Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And what happens with these friends is they lower their friend, they put him down, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, we could get into the theological discussion here that happens between him and the Pharisees and how this is one of those moments when the tide starts to turn. We could talk about the grand ramifications and the whole scheme of the universe and all that is happening here in the personhood of Jesus and the God-man dynamic that is there. But what I want you to see here is that in the midst of living life, when you live a passionate life, you must come to expect the unexpected. 
expected. We have an unpredictable God. And you know what? I am so thankful that He is unpredictable. Amen? I am so thankful that God is not predictable. Because if we could predict what God was doing, that would mean that we know more about God than He knows about us. And I don't know what your view of God is, but that ain't true. God is infinite in wisdom and creativity. We went to the zoo on Friday. It's fall break, and with Eli being in kindergarten, we're now on school schedule. And so we went to the zoo on Friday, and it is amazing to me every time I go to see the creativity of God. One of the animals that we didn't spend a whole lot of time looking at was a bird that looked like it had two bills. It had the one that had opened its mouth, and then it had the big one coming up right here. And you just walk around that place and you look at camels with humps on it. You know, somebody has said that camels was a horse made by committee. I don't know what that means, but but you look at the creativity of God. There used to be a place, or there still is a place, but we used to drive by a lot when we lived in West Tennessee, that this, this bank owner had bought all of these exotic animals. And you would drive by here in Alamo, Tennessee, and there'd be a zebra on the side of the road. And you just were amazed at the creativity. And one of the things that I know from my life is that God is constantly creative. So you expect the unexpected. Here's the third thing, though. But even in the unexpectedness, you create space for God to work. You create space for God to work. Create God's space. This is what I love. Before we get to the part where he says their sins are forgiven, just look what it says. And it's just in one verse. It just kind of doesn't even say a whole lot about it, but they went up on the roof, lowered him on his mat, threw the tiles into the middle of the crowd, and then what does it say? Right in front of Jesus. You know the reason I believe that most Christians aren't living lives of passion when it comes to their faith? It's simply the fact then they're not creating enough time with their Creator. You see, we schedule our lives to the point that we no longer have time to connect with the very One who desires for us to live a life to an abundance. And so we don't have that moment to connect to the vine. And as a result, our lives become listless and boring and mediocre instead of the passionate, wonderful existence that God has called us to. We don't create space in our lives for God to work. Now there are times when God will jump into your life when He will stop you right where you are, when He will force you to see Him in a new way. But most of the time, God allows us to just keep living until we come to the moment that we say, I can't do it anymore. And the reason that we have listless, boring, tired Christians, listless, boring, tired churches, is because we have people that are not connected to the very source of their strength. These friends took the paralytic and they lowered him right in front of Jesus. What I love about that is they could have put him, I don't know how big the room was, but if you're tearing the roof open, you're going to get attention. 
But it wasn't good enough for them just to get some attention over in the side. They figured out. They listened. They looked. You know, they hadn't seen where Jesus was in the house. I don't know how they navigated it. But whatever they did, they laid him right in front of Jesus. Now, some people have said, and it may be true, that as the man started to be lowered through the roof, people kind of scattered and Jesus just stayed where he was. But whatever the thing was, these guys created a space from him. One of the reasons that we realize that we need to create space for God in our lives is because Jesus created space in His life for His Father. In the book of Mark, it's a great book, because the book of Mark is one of those books that just says immediately and then, and it goes from one thing to another. And it is the book that you feel like it's an adrenaline rush, that you're just jumping from one thing to another. Here we go, here we go, here we go. But in the midst of Mark, very early in it, it has this passage of Scripture that you'll find on your handout. Mark 1, 35-38 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where He prayed. I love the disciples' reaction. Simon and his companions went to look for Him, and when they found Him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus said, Let's go somewhere else. Now look at that for a minute. What Simon Peter is basically saying is, Jesus, you're disappointing people. You're not here. You're not doing important stuff. You're supposed to be here with all these people. This is our ministry. This is our calling. But what we learn from Jesus is His calling, His ministry, His task never took precedence over His time with His Father. And when He says, listen, I know everybody's disappointed. I know they're all looking for Me. But it is time for us to rejuvenate, to re-energize, to get somewhere else. Let's go somewhere else. You know, we live in a world where people think they don't ever have to slow down. You know what's interesting to me is that it says in Scripture that God created the earth, the heavens and the earth, in six days, and on the seventh day He 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 rested. Some of you need to go home this afternoon and take a big nap. Amen? And some of you need to go home and let your spouse take a big nap without worrying them about taking a big nap. Amen? That didn't get near as much amen there. Somehow we have come to the point we think that even though God rested after the sixth day, we don't ever have to. And the truth is we have to build space. And I don't mean to get mystical here, but the truth is that God often talks to me most vividly in those moments of rest. In those moments of space. For you, that may mean getting up very early in the morning, a little earlier than you do. I will never forget, and I say it a lot, but one of my high school young life leaders used to say there are a lot of things in your life you don't control but for the most part you control when you get up and when you go to bed and so if you need to get up earlier or you need to stay up a little later you need to create some space for God Kerry Shook again the pastor who wrote the book says that whenever he gets to the place where he has a hundred things to do and he can't remember what they all are and he's confused and he doesn't know what to do next I always know to get alone with God to create some space. I have to get alone by myself, turn all the television, radio, and everything off, and just be with Him. 
Read the Scripture. Listen. Be quiet and pray. Psalm 46.10 says that if we're going to live for the Lord, then it's on the very bottom of your handout, and we'll get to the fourth point in a minute, but it says if we're going to live for the Lord, we've got to learn to be still and know that He is God. Here's the last thing. If you're going to live a life of passion, you must not forget. So you must keep a constant reminder. Keep a constant reminder. Here's what the challenge is going to be for us. You know, I've already heard this week from some people, from some of you that are reading this book, that are walking through this book, that are processing this book, about things that you've committed to do that you've been putting off. I've heard about vacations that are going to be taken. I've heard about, about relationships that are going to attempt to be reconciled. I've heard about conversations that are going to be held, about forgiveness that's going to be given. I've heard about all those things. And the truth is that most of us in this room have longer than 23 days left to live. And the reality is that when we're done with this book and you put it back on your shelf and you don't do the Sunday school lessons like we've done them over this last couple of weeks and you go back to the normal things and the normal routines and your normal life, the reality is that it will be very easy to not ask those questions or think those thoughts or go through this whole process of what is God calling me to do. And so you must build some things into your life to remind you of what God has done. Look at Luke 5.24. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, there are a lot of things in Scripture that people say, well, that's just coincidence it's there, or that's not important. But you must realize that when Luke was writing this, he was trying to get a lot of stuff there, and he was getting it on a small space. And for him to write it meant it was important. And I want you to notice that Jesus tells the guy to take the mat with him. Is that insignificant? I don't think it is. Because what I think Jesus is saying is, I want you to take that mat with you and every day put it somewhere that you remember your former life. Remember what it was like to lay there and yet I have healed you. I have raised you. I have given you new walk. You ought to look at that mat and remember what it symbolizes and think about it every day, what I have done. And for you, you need to begin to build into your life some little things. Maybe it's mementos in the house. Maybe it's a postcard or a note card in the car. Maybe it's something written by the mirror where you're going to spend some time getting ready in the morning. And maybe it's simple things. Maybe it's just the, uh, maybe it's just the letters O-M-T-L, one month to live. Maybe it's a, a Bible verse like John 10.10 10, that you've got up there that reminds you every morning. Maybe it's a card with a question, what would I do if I had... 30 days left to live. Maybe it's, it's a cross uh, that you keep in your pocket, and so when you reach for your keys, they make these little crosses you can put in your pocket. It just reminds you of your commitment. I don't know what it is, but we have to build things into our lives in order that we remember. You know, some people think that living a life of passion means living recklessly. And the truth is, it doesn't mean living recklessly, but it means living comfortable with the unknown. And as you've thought about over these last few days and you've read and you've been in Sunday school and you've thought about what would you do if you had one month left to live, the question I want to ask you this morning is, what is it that God is bringing to your mind that you must do? What is it that God is bringing to your mind that is important? What is it that God is saying to you, it's time for you to do this? 
Now, let me just say, I, I thought there was an excellent part in the book that talks about that there are certain decisions you can know, whether it's from God or whether it's from yourself. And generally, God-sized dreams are things that will require faith, and they're things that will cause you to go for other people, and they are things that will bring glory to Him and bring healing to others. And so as you think through what God is calling you to do, the question I have for you today is, would you be willing this morning to say, I know that God is bringing this to mind, and I will do it. I just want to tell you that if you will commit to that, there are some things in your lives that God is going to call you to do that will be very drastic. There are some things in your life that God's going to call you to do that you're going to have to remove some obstacles there. There are things in your life that the unexpected will come along and unexpected things will happen in your life. And in the midst of that, you're going to have to continually seek Him. But this morning, I just wonder whether you're ready to live that life more abundant.